Hello, this is Josh Belk with the Belk on Business Podcast. On today's podcast, we're actually going to show you a recording we did a couple weeks ago with the Active Turnkey Podcast with the Olson Group. I uh, spent uh, about 45 minutes or so. The video that we're, uh, we're putting out, the audio is edited. If you want to see the full uh, podcast, you can go to their uh, active turnkey podcast platform and see it. Uh, we edit it down to about 45 minutes, and uh, especially if you're a real estate investor, but I think uh, many business owners will find this particular podcast that we recorded helpful. Talk a lot about structure of a business as well as taxation, especially as it relates to real estate investors, but we get into a lot of talking about active and passive as it relates to taxation. Hope this particular podcast brings you value. If it does, please, I would encourage you to consider subscribing to the Belkin Business Podcast. Have a wonderful day. So, Tom, what so, are some of the questions that investors are asking right away? About well, Josh is my accountant. So, first of all, mm-hmm. Josh is my accountant. Mm-hmm. He's not on this show to to try to drum up business. Mm-hmm. He might be he might get business, but at the end of the day, he's got too much business, and he doesn't need any more business. <laughs> You know, a couple years ago, I'd have Josh on and be like, everybody, you guys need to use Josh. I used to probably send people text messages every week. Who do you use for your account? I would tell everybody. I have stopped telling people who I use now because Josh is so busy that sometimes he doesn't even get back to our stuff really fast. <laughs> so, so, but he is, honestly, like he's becoming a national speaker and he's being, he's really be, um, becoming well-known mm-hmm. in the real estate space because to be a real estate accountant, you kind of have to be niche. You can't just say like, I'm an accountant and I do real estate because there's so many things that are going on mm-hmm. in the real estate world that you have to understand. Mm-hmm. You have to understand, I mean, it's so funny, like most people don't even understand depreciation. Mm-hmm. People don't understand some of the real basics. So I think we haven't had Josh on this podcast no. yet. So we're gonna try to go over some of those real basic things today. And it's interesting because you know, investors, they do their homework. So when I get on the phone for the first call, they're studying deals. They're they're evaluating what is important to them. They're going through all that stuff. And then usually later is we're like, oh, yeah, there's this tax stuff I got to think about. And so how do I create an LLC? And we'll get into all these different things. But these are things that come up. And it's usually well later after they've either started investing or they're in the process of, of getting going. So it's interesting how that works for sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, I guess you, you kind of already brought it up at the very beginning mm-hmm. when you're buying a property. Mm-hmm. And I guess this isn't really tax, right, Josh? I mean, is, is, is company set up tax? It could, it could go into tax. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so why don't you just start there? Like, so the type of entity that you want to have, just let investors know what types can you have? What types do you normally recommend and what types do you normally see and you know what are the benefits and features of each different entity? Sure. Well, there are, of course, scriptural principle and a multitude of counselors there is safety or security. And mm-hmm. uh, one, I think it's extremely important when anyone gets into any sort of a, of a venture. In this case here, we're talking about somebody who uh, want to maybe diversify what they do, uh, maybe add real estate into their portfolio. They'd reach out to a, to a company like yours. Uh, when they're looking to purchase a property, and of course that would be one of the one of the people they of course want to lean on on your advice and expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but any sort uh, any person wanting to go out and start something, generally they would want to have a, a conversation generally with their attorney and also with their accountant. Mm-hmm. And there can be a lot of overlap, uh, both with the on the legal side and on the on the tax side as well. And so uh, in in our office, generally we can uh, we'll we'll try to walk clients through the front end and then give them some direction. Sometimes they would use us for the entity setup, and sometimes they would go to their attorney, depending on where they're at and what they're looking to do, depending on what state they're in um, and what they have going on, uh, not just within the business, but also as part of the overall estate uh, planning tools uh, that they may utilize a trust or something to that effect. 
Um, so when you're getting into something, uh, when we talk about the legal side, primarily we're more concerned about asset protection when we talk about the legal side than we are the, the tax side. Right. Um, so the, those decisions that get made, so for example, for somebody who's going out and buying their first turnkey property, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. um, if they were to call my office, the first thing I would suggest that they do would be to set up a, a, at least a single member LLC to mm -hmm. place that property in for asset protection. It doesn't do anything for you for tax. It's going to be taxed the same way, mm -hmm. regardless. But uh, to have that, to have that asset, uh, the, the, um, to have that protection, mm -hmm. uh, more for what you know. What is their bread and butter? For example, if you you might have a maybe a, a, a doctor mm -hmm. uh, listening to the podcast today, or somebody who's another type of a of a professional that they're not a real estate professional. Um, so they're getting into their first property. They want to, uh, you know, they may have read, you know, Think and Grow Rich or something like that, and they've got these, you know, seeds planted in. I need to go and mm -hmm. and, uh, and and diversify into real estate. And it's uh, what wealthy people do. And so how do they go about doing this? And, and, uh, and, and if they were to contact me, I would suggest set up a, at minimum a single member LLC. Uh, you're going to place this property in. And then, uh, then you go through the conversation in regards to insurance and some of this other thing. But it, it, gives you that, it gives you that asset protection side. And then making sure that it's set up properly and that you're following the rules that it relates to uh, what's required with the LLC setup. So when you talk about that, that's, that's very basic. Um, there are lots of other entities that you can obviously own property in, right? Um, so you can own property in an S-Corp, correct? You can. Uh, it, I, it's generally recommended that you never have rentals in, a, in an S-Corp uh, solely, uh, but, um, but, it, but you can, yes. There's nothing that prohibits it. So you said that, and now that's kind of where I was going with this. You can own it in an S-Corp, mm -hmm. but generally for rentals, for an investment, you know, if you're going to hold a property for a long period of time, um, it is more advantageous to go with the LLC, the single member LLC, or maybe if it's a partnership or whatever. Either way, why is it more advantageous? Okay, so whether we're talking a single member LLC, which is if it's just you're owning it, it's a multi-member LLC, which at that point by default would be taxed to the partnership. So maybe you're bringing somebody else in on the deal, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a husband and wife if you're in a state to where that may make sense. Uh, where that would be structured as a par partnership. It's still going to give you the asset protection, and then the taxation is going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, so a single-member LLC is going to be on your individual tax return. Mm -hmm. A multi-member LLC is going to be taxed as a partnership. Um, so it will have its own separate tax return. Um, but uh, but uh, regardless which direction you go on that end, whether it's a single-member or multi-member LLC, whether it's taxed as what the IRS says, a disregarded entity, um, or a partnership, multi-member LLC, uh, in, in both of those situations, um, you, uh, there, there are no tax issues that you would run into there. Uh, the taxation can be the same. The problem is when you have an LLC taxed as an S-Corp or an S-Corp and you place a, a passive real estate investments into an S-Corp, the IRS uh, wants for S-Corp owners to draw a salary. So what you end up having to do is transition mm -hmm. some of your passive income and turn it into active income. So then when you start, you have the, all the payroll compliance piece mm -hmm. as well as uh, the additional tax, uh, payroll taxes that come into play. Mm -hmm. um, so it is not a wise decision uh, when it comes to taxation to have mm -hmm. rental properties in, a, uh, in an LLC so tax. So that, that passive income that we don't have to normally pay our Social Security or FICA or all the other stuff on it, you could end up having to pay that upwards to what, 14%? Right, so the, you end up right. So you end up with the 15% uh, SECA tax or FICA tax in, in the case of payroll, plus your federal unemployment, your state unemployment, mm -hmm. and just the cost <laughs> of uh, the compliance cost mm -hmm. uh, to have the payroll processed and, mm -hmm. and have those uh, tax forms filed. Absolutely. So, so that's why, like, LLC versus S corp, you know, according to the accountant, not just according to me, is normally better. So, can you also? So, so what about a C corp? So, C corp makes sense, and I, I think for a lot of individuals, 
uh, or entrepreneurs when they begin to build out their, uh, essentially if they have multiple businesses, different types of income streams, it may make sense to put it into a C-Corp. Uh, and, uh, and, and we can really get into the weeds on this, but for most people, it's not gonna make sense. Um, but there are situations where it may make sense. Now, most of our buyers, when they're buying, uh, they're using conventional financing, and so they have to have the entity in their name initially to purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, and the house in their name, not the house. The intent, Excuse right. me, yes, the, the house, right. Uh, and so uh, typically, you know, they're concerned about right away getting it in the LLC. Uh, what would you recommend in those situations in this type of scenario when it's in their initial name, but then the LLC is obviously in their LLC's name? Right. Most of the time, lenders don't have an issue if you quit claim it into the LLC, provided you're a personal guarantee on it. However, uh, lenders can always can execute a due-on-sale clause. Uh, that, that's usually within mortgage contracts when you try to make that transition. Most of the time, if you're transparent with the lender on the front end, uh, and you're working with a title company, let them know this is a single member LLC. I mean, it's going to be a personal guarantee. Most of your lenders out there, if they're used to dealing with uh, with uh, real estate as an investment, know how to work through that and uh, and kind of get beyond. And we we deal with lenders day in and day out. And uh, ideally, if you literally close the property right into the LLC, it's placed in the LLC, and the lend- and you're the personal guarantee on the loan then uh, you're not generally not going to have any issues. To try to close it in your name and then move it later on, and usually lenders will not execute the due on sale clause. However, it is a tool in their toolbox that they can mm-hmm. use at some point uh, if they're into becoming issues with the uh, with the loan, for example. Sure, down the road. So yeah. let's get into like what are the real tax advantaged potential mm-hmm. ways to be able to you know own real estate and you know so the, the only other two that I know of and there might be more obviously you can own a fund you can do other little really you know more complex things that we're not going to get into today but you can you can put a house into a land trust which there's really absolutely no tax advantage at that point it's really just an extra entity and it's whoever the beneficiary of that is going to be taxed in that in that way correct right so um, land trust are, um, are an anonymity tool mm-hmm. uh, primarily so when uh, somebody goes through and they, you know, they try to find out what you own, for example, it would never pop up. Um, so the property, uh, you know, if you're, you're buying a property at 123 Johnson Street, it says 123 Johnson Land Trust, mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be, uh, they don't know who owns it. They don't know who the grantor or the beneficiary is. And we, we do have client, a lot of clients that use this. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, these grantor-based trusts are handled differently in different states. Um, but most of the time, you can place it right into the trust. The land trust documents, at least in, at least in Indiana and in other states, you have to look at your own state rules. Uh, those land trusts are not recorded. So, um, so an attorney doesn't know who owns the property. The public doesn't know who owns the property. They just see the land trust. And then, um, so that is a way um, that, uh, that you can uh, own it's the anonymity. property. Right, and right. provides anonymity. Um, that it's, it's not asset protection in its purest form, but it's a type of, of a way to kind of protect yourself. And then, uh, and also it is a way that you can transfer property uh, from uh, from one entity to another or from a grantor to a to a separate beneficiary. Um, and that can get really complex, but it is something- By simply yeah, just changing the beneficiary. By simply changing the beneficiary. It doesn't change necessarily the taxation, right. so but the it, taxation, it is a way- The taxation way to all goes to whoever the beneficiary Correct. is. So if the beneficiary is an LLC, it's gonna go right as an LLC. If it's, gonna, if it's an S-Corp, well, you might run the same problems that we talked to as an S-Corp. If it's an individual, it's gonna be just like an individual. Right. So, uh, so as a as a novice, like for me on this side, I don't know as much about this side of of the, the game here. So, if I own the property, say it's in my name or an LLC, and I want to move it into a trust for that camouflage, does it appear as a sale? No. So if so, how I guess if someone's word was to the follow title, the, the, title the title will change, show yeah. as a transfer of title. 
It shows a transfer of title, but it's not considered a sale. Correct. Okay. And, well, and, I guess in my mind, like if someone were to try to follow along to find the owner, they could. Would it appear to them that somebody else owns it once it moves from either my name or the LLC to the trust? Well, ideally, you want to close it into the land trust, and and right. simply okay. because when okay. somebody goes and does a lookup, they'll see that uh, that um, you know X Y Z properties purchases. And then it was you know transferred a few days later into sure. this land trust. Yeah. So then they kind of look and say, okay, well, you know, we saw who owned it before. In all probability, they own it. Mm-hmm. So ideally, you would want to close it directly into the into the land trust. And once gotcha. again, if you're if you're utilizing a lender, and there are many of them out there that uh, that's familiar with real estate investing, they work uh, heavily with real estate investors. They're going to understand it, mm-hmm. and they're going to be able to help you and walk you through that process. Interesting. So that didn't offer us any tax at all. It's really <laughs> just a whole legal anonymity thing but there is a way you can buy a property in an IRA mm-hmm. so maybe we'll run through just real quickly top you know high, high level um, you know buying a property in an LL and in, in a in an IRA like how can that be beneficial for you okay so um, a lot of people when they think about their their retirement most people think of, by default they think of okay I'm, I'm going to invest in a mutual fund mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna buy stock I'm gonna do those types of things and uh, there are people out there that don't realize that you can uh, do what they call self-directing uh, your your IRA funds. So essentially, if you have it into Vanguard, or I probably shouldn't name name, but you guys kind of kind of get the point. So you have it in kind of one of these traditional types of places that that most people think that they you know they place their retirement funds. That you can actually take those funds and and uh, and, and basically roll that money uh, into uh, into or with a custodian, mm-hmm. what's called a custodian. The you cannot self-direct uh, generally on your own. You generally have to have a custodian. Okay, and then we can get into checkbook IRA and those types of things, which is probably outside the scope of this. But generally, if you're buying passive real estate, you're not you're you know you're not going to want to get into trying to figure all this out on your own. <laughs> generally, you'll want to contact a custodian, and then uh, set up a and you can do this online uh, with most of them. You set up a uh, a self-directed account with them, and it needs to be a lifetime time type of an account. So it's a four hundred one k if it's a SEP, uh, whatever it is, and you're going to roll it into. Uh, into a self-directed. So say for example, let's use numbers here. So say for example, you have $100,000 in your, currently in your IRA, your 401k, and your SEP, wh- whatever it may be. You can choose to self-direct it. So you'd contact the custodian, you'd set up this account, and then you would roll the funds, that $100,000, out of your Vanguard account, wherever it may be, and you and you simply roll it into the, or transfer it into uh, into the custodian's account. Okay, now you, you own the account. So generally it would be the name of the, uh, um, the, name of the IRA company, FBO, or for the benefit mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. and that would have your name, IRA. And then uh, at that point, you could take that $100,000 and you can purchase a property with it. Uh, and now you can't uh, be going and buying fix and flips and doing the work yourself and those types of things. Uh, so if we're talking about an active turnkey, like we are in this, particular, uh, in this particular podcast, you can go through and buy and purchase a property, purchase a turnkey property mm-hmm. that is, uh, you're going to place a, a tenant in, there's going to be a property manager on it, just like you would outside of your, port, your, your IRA. But then uh, what, what, what ends up happening is you take that $100,000 and you purchase this property, there's a tenant in it, uh, the IRA at that point, month over month, would receive, the, uh, would receive that check or that money coming in back into the IRA. So uh, essentially uh, at that point your, your IRA would grow. So your IRA holds and would hold title to the property and then it grows by the rents that, it's received, that, uh, that it receives every month. Uh, beyond that, you can, and some people are a little bit scared of this, Tom, as, as you know, uh, people get a little bit nervous that, well, I, you know, $100,000, especially in this market, isn't going to buy me a turnkey property. 
I, I, I've identified one for 180. I only have $100,000. You can get a loan for the, uh, for the other 80. And then uh, it becomes leveraged. And then you be become subject to a little bit of what's called unrelated business income tax. And uh, you would just pay a little bit of tax on the, basically on the income that you receive uh, based on the percentage that is leveraged. Yeah, and I think the other thing that people get hung up on is if you own a property in an IRA, you don't get to take advantage of the other tax advantages outside of an IRA, like depreciations, so to speak. Mm -hmm. However, if you are using um, leverage, you actually do get to get take advantage of it for the portion of it that's leveraged. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. like, it does re still reduce your taxable UBIT or unrelated mm -hmm. business income tax. Um, but, like, so, and, and, and at the end of the day, we talked about this before the podcast even, is, like, a lot of people are afraid of UBIT. They think it's, like, this big extra tax. It's really not that much. When you really run the numbers, it's, like, always less than 10%. Every, every time that I've ever have, have seen somebody do an actual mm -hmm. thing with property in an IRA, they've always found out it's way less than 10% of tax. So that's not 10% of the money that's in there. It's 10% of the tax that you would have ended up paying. Um, it, it's it's really a very small amount amount of money when you when you you know consider all, all those things. Now you do have to put forty percent down. They there are only specific lenders that will do these types of loans, um, and that can be a different podcast. We talk a little bit more about um, you know maybe specific. We have a custodian on or something that will talk about IRAs. Mm -hmm. But I did just want to let everybody know that there is other tax advantages that you can or advantages of a way to actually purchase and what entities to actually have properties in. Make sense? Oh, yeah. I, I'm ready to write a book. <laughs> Jared's ready? Uh, no. no just <laughs> so Josh, what are some mistakes you see investors making? It's uh, uh, just, just out the gate. What are some things you see? Uh, again, particularly, I would say, particularly within the, the, the rental uh, side of things. Uh, do you see them, uh, like, just where is that the land for you, where you notice that? Well, I think uh, primarily it's uh, not having the conversation on the front end with the people you need to have the conversation with. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so so many times we see clients, not just in real estate, but in, in across the board, mm -hmm. that um, they'll they'll reach out to us or their accountant um, or their attorney even after they've already been in business. When we talk about tax, and we'll silo this to tax, uh, there are a lot of things that can be done in December that cannot be done in January mm -hmm. every year. So to make sure that um, that you're not going out there, you know, you, you heard about this, maybe you're in a mastermind, maybe you heard about this on TV, maybe you read this in a book, oh, I can do this. Or I'm at going, the Active Turnkey Podcast. Or at the Active Turnkey, <laughs> boy, I can sure. do this, and, and you get a light bulb on, boy, you know, I can see a way that I can amass uh, my wealth mm -hmm. uh, by by using this vehicle, by using this uh, this type of investment. I annoy Josh every time I go to town because I'm always like, can I do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and it happens. I mean, if you were to look at my phone, I mean, people go and they hear things, and I'm glad sure. they do. I, I like that there's education platforms like this one mm. that can get this information out there. Um, but um, but a lot of times you're hearing something in a room or you're hearing something, you read so something somewhere, but it may not necessarily be directly applicable to you. Sure. So to make sure you're having that conversation, that you're setting up your LLC before you buy the property, that you're going through and you're having that conversation with your accountant to make sure that it's structured in a way as it fits, as it relates to your taxation. Um, so you don't, you don't go through and throw a bunch of money after something that isn't going to give you the most impact as it relates to either tax minimization or increasing your wealth. Awesome. Love it. So like the only other thing that I know, Jared, that's really like tax related mm -hmm. that I know for sure we want to get in this podcast and maybe you have more questions and Josh, maybe you have, I, I would like to give us a little bit of an update 2021 if there's some kind of update on things that are going. But I think the other thing that I think um, 
I think I understand for the most part, but even been being being owning rentals for over 20 years, like I still feel like I have questions on, and that is depreciation. Mm. Understanding depreciation, why does the government even give it to us? Mm. And then, like, I, and I think I know the reason why, but like, what advantages are there really in real estate? And I, I actually feel like it's it's kind of like one of those hidden advantages that most people don't understand. Um, but the ones that do understand, like, I, and for instance, I have one of our investors. And he had he told me for the first two or three years that he owned rental properties with us. He had about twenty properties with us. It wiped out almost all of his active income. And this is a dentist making like three, four hundred thousand dollars a year. It's a serious amount of you know tax savings or deferment. Really, is 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 kind of more of, of the word um, that that is kind of a hidden benefit. It's one of those fa- I call it one of the five cash flow drivers in your actual property. People only look at the cash flow, how much money you make sure. at the end of the yeah. month. But like the equity pay down that you're paying mm-hmm. every month and the depreciation are one of those kind of hidden things that you don't really realize mm-hmm. until at the end. So Josh, can, can you do the, your best to explain depreciation? How does it work? And then why does the government give it to us? And then how does it you know kind of end up, you know, kind of all coming back full circle when you go and sell a property. Okay. Um, and then so, maybe we can get into 1031s if, if that kind of like leads into that. Yeah, so there's like three or four things there and it can be a very, and, and I can stand mm-hmm. seeing I'm sitting here. I can sit here and, and ramble <laughs> on about this for, for quite a while. Um, but let me try to kind of quickly run through this. Um, so when we talk about taxation in general, we have to realize that um, the taxes are there um, to basically uh, do one of two things. Okay, so so first of all, and I'm going to try to keep this as apapolitical as I possibly can. They're not can. there to take money out of our pocket. Um, so yeah, okay, I mean, sorry. sometimes yeah, I don't want to. I, I went political. He said no but, political. I'm yeah, going to go there. So the um, uh, because both sides of the aisle have you sure. know have you know, and, and one side is you know a lot of crony capitalism. The other one is is kind of this whole kind of redistribution of wealth, mm-hmm. kind of that goes behind mm-hmm. it. So, but primarily ta- the, the taxation is there, um, or the tax strategies are there to get us to act in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about uh, special types of depreciation, which I'll get into here in a moment, uh, is is to get us as business owners, uh, as investors, uh, to act in a certain way. I mean, I think that's the best way to to like explain it. I really do. But like, I always question that. I'm like, do they really want me to do this? And then when I do it, like then then like as an investor, we all get criticized because we're crony capitalists, right? Well, they. Um, <laughs> Well, you, a lot of times you get criticized. Um, you, you We're just literally taking advantage of the system that mm-hmm. has been set up. Yeah. And we, we have clients that literally, they I mean, they make millions of dollars a year and they pay no income tax. You got it. And, and a it lot can of it, be done. A lot of it happens right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, and, it, and it's one of those things that it's, but, but you have the thing is when you're saying they're paying no income tax, I mean, a lot of them. It's and, deferred. Well, it's let, let me, really let me no go beyond tax. that. I, I want to, I, I think it's extremely important, important that we point this out. I mean, Jared, I mean, you own, you own businesses, Tom, mm-hmm. you own businesses. Uh, I do as well beyond just the accounting firm. And one thing that all of our businesses do is we hire employees that you don't realize the amount of tax that we pay in payroll taxes, property taxes, mm-hmm. all these other types of taxes that we pay. Uh, and, um, and, and so income tax is just one of those taxes that, uh, that, we, that we happen to pay. So it's not like you're not paying any tax. It's just that you're, you know, you're, um, and a lot, and a lot of those taxes that we pay are for the benefit of our employees. You got the it. matching of the FICA taxes that comes out of the, the, uh, it doesn't come out of the employee's paycheck. It comes out of the bottom line of the company. Uh, unemployment tax, which has been a big one over the last, uh, over the last year, employees are, appreciate the fact that we pay that. So in case they end up having to be let go, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but, um, but when it comes to when we talk about uh, ordinary income taxation, let, let's talk about silo it to real estate. 
in order for a um, for a individual who invests in real estate to take the most advantage as it relates to depreciation is they have to be considered a real estate professional. Hmm. Now there are three different ways you can come actually four different ways you can be considered a real estate professional. I don't want to get down this kind of go down this rabbit hole either. But bottom line is, and I'll, I'll use a 750 hour rule. So you have to uh, materially participate in the real estate activity. So this can be you know development management construction, whatever the case, hands-on, whatever the case may be, uh, or 750 hours a year. And you need to keep some sort of contemporaneous records of mm, it. Mm. So kind of keep a log. That can include, you know, going out, identifying a property, you know, doing doing these types of things. If you meet that 750 hours, you can do the math, how many hours is that a week, that type mm -hmm. of thing. But if you, if, you, um, if you do indeed hit the 750 hours, then at that point, your losses uh, do not have a uh, ceiling on them. If you're under it, depending on your income level, it, it's going to be capped at $25,000. Now, you're going to take all of your passive real estate activity and combine it. So if you have a $30,000 loss on one property, you can offset it against the $30,000. It doesn't matter of the 750-hour rule, okay? So that's zero. Right. So you can, it wipes itself out. But if you're going to take the maximum uh, benefit when it comes to depreciation, you want to be considered a real estate professional. Okay, and, and getting into whether or not you do apply, you want to have that conversation with your accountant and then making sure that you fully understand the four different ways and maybe structure uh, your particular, um, the way that you operate in a way that you would meet one of those criteria. Okay, um, and so once you're there, then at that point, you can take massive depreciation on properties, and I'll talk about here in, how here in just a moment, and then use that to offset your W-2 income or your other types of active income. Okay, now you're not going to get your, your CICA or your FICA tax back, but you could, get, you could wipe out all of your other ordinary income tax. Most of the time, now there are other ways, but one of the ways when we're talking about uh, buying, purchasing turnkey uh, rentals would be through what they call cost segregation. Now, uh, one thing that was, uh, that was put into place here a few years ago under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act under President Trump was the ability to be able to break down uh, certain elements of a property into a smaller components. And then, uh, and then those certain components uh, can be depreciated immediately or in year one when the property is in service. And, um, and so let, let's walk through an active. Let's so walk with that, a, like real, you're, you're still, you're accelerating the depreciation. You're accelerating the depreciation. So say, say for example. Twice. You're not going to get it twice. You're right. just, you're accelerating a portion of the depreciation that you could collect normally over what? Is that 27? 27, uh, single family rentals are 27 and a half years. Okay. So, uh, so normally uh, when you go and you buy a property, okay, so say for example, let's use some round numbers here. You go and you purchase a property for $200,000. Mm -hmm. Part of that $200,000 you're going to have to apportion to land. Mm -hmm. So let's say that number is 20%. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to see how good I can do math. Well, I can do math here in my head. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I got that. So 20% 20, 20 of uh, the 400,000. Uh, well, 20%, uh, you said. 20, mm -hmm. So 20% is land. That's 40,000. 40, mm -hmm. uh, that cannot be depreciated. So I take the remaining 160. Now, we can take that remaining $160,000 normally without accelerated depreciation. That 160000 would be depreciated over 27 and a half years. Now, if I go through and have a cost segregation report done, then that 160,000 will be broken into a number of different components. You'll still have a portion, a large, the largest portion, maybe say 60% of it, uh, will still be depreciated over 27 and a half years. Mm -hmm. But the remaining amount of it can be accelerated, which would be land improvements, would be any sort of uh, what's considered furniture and fixtures within the property, uh, uh, certain components within the property. Generally, it's anything from the drywall in that can be accelerated. And so when the study is done, then you're going to take uh, about, usually it's about 40% of that remaining amount, okay, and you would be able to, at that point, 
full, so you know, it's usually 30 to 40% and immediately expense it through depreciation in year one. So when you say depreciation, I want to get on this. What is it actually? Like when you depreciate something on your taxes, mm -hmm. what's the tax effect? So when you depreciate something, uh, so you're, you're, the first thing it's going to do is going to offset any income that you, any other net income you have on that particular property. So if you had $10,000 in rent that you collected that particular year, uh, you had $2,000 in other expenses, $8,000, and then you have, say, $15,000 in depreciation. Okay, the first portion of it, that first uh, seven, eight, whatever, so that first 8,000 is going to be wiped out, and then the remaining seven would be used to offset against other income. So you buy a, what you said, $200,000 property, you depreciate it all the way down for 27 and a half years, right? And then what happens? Okay, so at that point, you still have the remaining 40000 that you haven't depreciated. That's the land. Now, in theory, okay, usually by then, you're at the point to where you may be retiring, uh, something to that effect. So you don't have other, you know, other sources of income. Your income tax uh, rate generally is going to be lower. Um, so it is a good time to have more taxable income at that point uh, because generally you are at a lower tax bracket. Now, there, of course, there are other things to be done. You go to 1031 exchange. Uh, you can do other types of things uh, to, uh, to maybe step but, up into another property. Once you're done depreciating yeah. 27, you don't get that depreciation anymore. It's over. Correct. So yeah. So, so now you don't get out. that, you don't get that benefit anymore. Correct. But so then I guess the other thing is, is like, so what if I want to sell it then? So if it's 30 years, like I bought a house in my thirties and now I'm in my sixties mm -hmm. and you know, I paid 200 grand for the house at this point. I mean, even at a 2% appreciation rate, which is probably low over like the course of a hundred years, mm -hmm. But at two percent, I mean, you, that property at that point may be worth say three, three twenty, three fifty. Mm -hmm. At that point, what happens then when they go to sell the properties for? Let's just say they sell for three fifty. Okay. So under current uh, under <clears throat> under current tax rules, mm -hmm. um, at that point, if you go if you were to go and sell it, so let's just keep the numbers easy, three hundred thousand. So you sell that property for three hundred thousand. You have forty thousand dollars in land. your remaining basis, which is the land that you haven't used. So that remaining, my math is correct, two hundred sixty thousand dollars you're gonna pay a long-term capital gains rate on it. So you're capturing back now. Like all that income that you got to say was not income over the period of time is now new income. I just want everybody to understand yes. that. Like depreciation is not really like it's tax-free. It's not the fact that I never have to pay tax on it. It's just like some like magic thing that the government gave me. And it, actually, if you ask me the reason why the government gives us depreciation is because that they're, they know the expectation of appreciation for a lot of the things that they give depreciation on. So they know that there's an expectation that things are gonna go up in value. And when they go up in value, at some point you're gonna sell in the future, mm -hmm. and now you're gonna to have to pay tax on a larger amount. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, so I, again, I was thinking about this today, like as we were going into this, I, I just, to me, I don't think most people think about that whole process. Um, now at that point, now this is why 1031 becomes advantageous mm -hmm. at this mm -hmm. point, right? Because like, it's not just the, the 160, now we're talking 260, you know, it's a lot more money. Mm -hmm. And even if you only sell in say 10 years, there might be $100,000 in equity. Like that's a, I mean, how, how much tax would a normal, you know, professional making two, $300,000 a year expect to pay in tax, Josh, on that $100,000, you know, new, you know, capital gain is what is what end up being considered, right? Right. Well, in 2021, still, I mean, the capital gains rate is capped at 20%. So you'd be paying 20%. Now, the depreciation recapture is taxed at 25. So it is taxed a little bit higher. So you kind of have to be aware of that. If you um, so, when if you're if you're not planning on holding the property, 
And generally, if you're doing a cost segregation, we're going to say you need to hold on to that property three to five years for it to make sense. Otherwise, it's pointless to do it because of the depreciation recapture. And yeah, and cost seg goes yeah. gets really complicated. Yeah. Most of our turnkey buyers don't take advantage of it. And honestly, like for me, I don't even worry about it because I feel like at the end of the day, if I do go to sell at some point, I'm going to have to pay it back anyways. Um, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, so it really depends on you know, where you're at. If you're a professional and maybe this the next two or three years, you're going to make an extra two or $300,000. I have friends of mine that they're in this, they're this boat. So they're looking for anything they can possibly use to offset income the next two or three years. If you're in that situation, then cost segregation may absolutely be a benefit to you, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so let's just get in quickly to 1031. Um, we, we don't have a whole lot more time on the podcast, but just kind of explain 1031, what's required and how can people take advantage of that? And like, what does that mean in the whole tax world? Okay, so a 1031 exchange, um, and of course there's a, there is an attack on, on this going on right now. And well, well the other thing we didn't talk about yeah. too when it comes to depreciation is the stepped up basis. Mm-hmm. So like, you wanna explain stepped up basis right now real quick or you want me to? You no, go ahead. No, I, I, Josh is here to confirm if I'm right or wrong, right? So <laughs> stepped up basis basically means like, it, let's just say I own the property for 30 years and I depreciate it all the way down and then I die. Right, inevitably, like two things that we know are going to happen: death and taxes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so I die, and I, I give these properties. They have to go somewhere. But my heirs it doesn't matter if it's my kids. It doesn't matter if I'm giving them to Josh or Jared or, or Ben or anybody, whoever I get them, give them to. Mm-hmm. Like they now get a brand new stepped up basis, which, from what my understanding is, Josh is like the new market value. So if the new market value is $300,000 on this scenario that we gave, they get to start depreciating all over again at $300,000. Right, so they get the stepped up basis, which is the, uh, the that fair market value as of the date of death or six months after, which is mm-hmm. called the alternative valuation date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that again, like that's a whole brand new benefit. Mm-hmm. That is like one of these secret sauces of generational wealth mm-hmm. when it comes to, to passing on property because they get a whole brand new stepped up basis and a whole brand new you know, $300,000 to depreciate over the next 27 and a half years. Now, there is some limitations beyond that. I don't believe you can redo, redo that again, but that's probably a bit more complicated question. If Josh wants to get in that, you can or not. Uh, but 1031, so let's just say I own a property for 10, 20 years, Josh, and I sell it and I don't want to pay this massive tax. What options do I have? So a 1031 exchange basically is allowing for, instead of you paying t- capital gains tax when you sell the property, for you to be able to purchase, it has to be a like-kind property. So single family rental for single family rental, uh, commercial property for commercial property, land for land, et cetera, okay? Um, so it has to be a like-kind property. And then, uh, so you, you would exchange it, uh, essentially the one type. So say for example, a single family rental that you may have, uh, you may have owned for a number of years, and you have to have owned it, owned it for at least one year uh, um, for it to be long-term capital gains at that point. And then you can essentially take the remaining basis and, and, uh, and, and reduce the new property by that, by that remaining basis. So um, you're just essentially rolling your basis into the, into the new property. You're not paying capital gains on it. Mm. So, so how does that work? So from my understanding, if I'm going to do this, I have to know about it mm-hmm. before I sell the property, mm-hmm. right? So I, there's a lot of people that they come oh, to me. timelines. Yeah. They come to me and they're like, I just sold the property. I just closed yesterday. Or like, just closed last week. I want to do a 1031. And I'm like, it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's sure. over. Like you, yeah. your opportunity is over. So <laughs> can you quickly walk us through that, Josh? Like, so you have to get yourself an attorney or is it just an attorney? No, and a qualified, it's called a qualified intermediary. You, uh, and attorneys are not QIs. Um, accountants are not QIs. They don't allow for us to do them anymore. So you'd have to contact a qualified interme- intermediary. We have a, quite a few of them in our, at our firm that we, that, we, uh, that we utilize depending on what you have going on. 
then at that point you have to identify a uh, within 45 days of the closing. So you have to make a determination. So say for example you've owned this property within 45 say, days before you close. Let, let, let right. me I'll walk through this. Okay. okay. So you you've gone through and you have um, you have made a determination that you're going to want to do a 1031. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you cannot go and close and take the money. Mm -hmm. You have right. to get a qualified intermediary involved before closing. They're going to take hold of the funds. They're going to they have a fiduciary responsibility to hold on to it and put it into trust for you. Okay. So they so the QI holds on to the onto the funds. You have 45 days after the close to identify a property. After you close on on the on it's the property 45 days now. now? I thought and it was then 60. you have. Uh, and then you have um, uh, then you have six months to close on it. Okay, so let's just walk through that timeline. So before you close, mm -hmm. you already have to have this inter inter I can't say intermediary intermediary yeah, set up. Mm -hmm. They have to be they have to agree. There's a fee for this too, just so you guys know. Yeah. This isn't free. People don't do it for free. <laughs> and 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 Josh, like, how much do those normally cost? Is it kind of based on like how big the property is, how much money they're holding on to, like? Yeah, the, the, all those elements. Uh, and usually, the you know the cheapest is going to be a thousand bucks, and it goes up from there. Okay, I mean, I've seen even on single families, the cheapest I've ever seen is five or six thousand dollars. So I'm mm -hmm. glad he said that there's even those people out there who'll do them for a thousand because I didn't realize that. Um, Good luck finding one, but I mean, yeah, you, I was you, like, you I, I haven't seen anybody for less than five yeah. or six thousand yeah. dollars, and because it's funny, because a lot of times, even like our turnkey buyers are selling a property, maybe, and they're going to make thirty thousand dollars, and I'm like, if you're going to pay six thousand dollars for an intermediary, it's like it's almost not worth it because the amount of tax you're going to save is like almost the same amount of money. So yeah, like, so if, we're, if you're talking an eighty thousand dollar property, it makes absolutely no sense to do it. Right. right? So you, you have to know how much money you're making. So how much money you're actually going to have to pay back? It doesn't it doesn't even matter about how much. If it's eighty thousand dollar property, but it's already been depreciated down to zero, well, it might make sense at that point. But it's not going to make sense if they bought it for seventy or sixty or fifty even. Like so, the, my rule of thumb, whether it's worth it or not, I want to be making fifty thousand dollars or more to even consider it. Like. I, to me, I just don't think it's worth it. But that's just my opinion. That's not like, you know, you know, black and white. Um, so that you have to find somebody ahead of time. You're going to have to pay them. They're going to take the funds at closing. And then, like Josh said, you have 45 days to find property. And then you have six months to close. I think there's actually timelines beyond that if you're going to do repairs to the property. And the money that you have held in trust there can be used for repairs as well. And then there, I think there's a couple more rules, right? Josh, my understanding, there has to be, at, you have to do at least the amount of, uh, right. amount of, of, of money that you have, or is it the amount of property you sold? It's, it's the, uh, it needs to be the, essentially the capital gains plus your basis needs to be rolled into the new property. Okay. Yeah. So if it's a hundred thousand dollar house that I just sold, I got to buy another hundred thousand dollar house or more. Right. Now I can buy more. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can even use that big chunk to like buy, you know, more properties, mm -hmm. correct? As mm -hmm. long as they're like kind, I can, I can leverage if I want to, right? Um, so all these things kind of go into play and, and all you're doing. So it's so one thing I, I want to clarify, cause I'm not, I'm not understanding this now. You said it rolls into your new basis. Does that mean the basis that you start with on the new properties is now lower? It's now lower. Okay. Right. So yes. that, that's something that I didn't really completely yep. understand until this podcast. So I'm glad that we clarified that. So let's just say I buy a $200,000 property and I have this $100,000 chunk from the first the first deal I did that was all gain. Let's just say it's all gain. I'm not sure. It, could, it, it, it probably couldn't right. have been. But like, let's just say it was. Now now my new basis that I can depreciate in the second property is only going to be $100,000. Right. If I do one hundred for one hundred, dollars I'm not going to have any basis. Correct. I'm not going to have any more de future depreciation. Right. Um, it's just like I took the cash and I moved it to another property and I just didn't have to pay tax now. It's just going to be prolonging at some point down in the future, the government's thinking, I'm going to get paid on this, right? 
All right. Um, can, now, can you continue doing that? Can you continue, mm-hmm. you know, like time and time again, let's just say I do this five or six times in my lifetime, I can continue to 1031 over and over and over again, correct? Yeah, as long as you continue to have basis there to... I just remember, I remember Greg Bond in our mastermind. He wanted to explain this to like really young. If you can do this when you're 19, mm-hmm. like buy your house and then like go to a duplex and then go to a fourplex and like by the time you're 60 years old, you're gonna have a big multi-unit and it'll be all paid in full. And anyway, so uh, well, that kind of goes into question because Josh, you did say you buy one property and you buy the same one in kind. So if you if I do this with a single family, do I then have to roll it into a single family? Or right, is it so either... it can be, um, and there are kind of ways around this. We talk about DSTs, mm-hmm. and it can get really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. But, um, but generally, when we're talking about uh, most people, when they're thinking about doing a, a like-kind exchange, yes, you can trade. So when we talk about, uh, when I'm saying single family, when we talk about like-kind, it has to be the same depreciation kind with the IRS, which is gotcha. 27 and a half years for 27 and a half years. That can be up to an eight unit gotcha. if okay. it's not considered commercial. Once you start getting larger than that, uh, so it can be a multifamily, but mm-hmm. it's still considered... Uh, depreciated over 27 and a half years. So when you're talking about, you know, the gentleman that was in our mastermind, uh, that's kind of the way you go through. But to the point you want, you can't go from an eight unit to buy an apartment complex or a hotel or a storage facility, you know, those types of things. That's not a like-kind exchange. But you can kind of ramp up from a single family up to maybe an eight unit at that point uh, using this particular mm-hmm. strategy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. So we've gotten through most of the basics. Um, and I know that this is a little longer podcast, but we're just going to keep going. We're in 2021 and everything's crazy. So we just decided, hey, there's got to be some tax updates, Josh. Is there anything that you can want to throw at us this year that might be different than years past? Yeah, we've talked about 1031s and I actually kind of typed out these notes because this is like really hot and heavy. Some of these have changed. I, I actually did a, a podcast on my platform regarding to, you know some of the things that President Biden was wanting to do or whoever's the pu- puppet is in, in uh, President Biden's back. <laughs> We're um, not going political, folks. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, so it, it's kind of one of those things that, of course, he's aggressively, you know, you know, kind of this whole mentality that people who make money are bad and uh, you mm-hmm. know, their money needs to be taken away from them and giving to, given to people that, that don't work. Um, so uh, it irritates me as an entrepreneur, and I, I got into politics at night. My, um, my, my, okay. It was kind of coming. I understand. Yeah. It was yeah. Kind of, so, I agree. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> um so I promise you, you know, most of the time your producers are, you know, they're, they're going to be a little opposition to a lot of this. But when we talk about the 1031 exchanges, uh, he, at this point, he's not looking to eliminate them. He's just simply going to say that um, either you can't use them depending on your income level or you're going to be taxed at an ordinary income tax rate. So he's doing a eliminate 1031 exchanges for those with income over $400,000 a year. He has his $400,000 threshold uh, that he keeps talking about. So if you're over that threshold, then uh, you would not be able to utilize 1031s if indeed one of these three different, you know, t- tax uh, one of these uh, laws go through or bills uh, go through that he's put out there. Uh, so you just kind of be aware of that. If you're a little bit of a higher income, four hundred thousand dollars is not that much money anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, it's going to affect more and more people. Um, so if you're at the four hundred thousand dollar level, you're going to have to be aware that um, that there's going to kind of be this target on your back uh, that's going to come after you. So you're not going to be able to use, utilize 1031s. Um, if you're um, if you have if your income is uh, over a million dollars in uh, in income, you're you're not going to be able to pay the lower capital gains rate. You're going to hit with the ordinary income tax rate plus the net investment tax. So essentially, you're looking at about a 43, 44 percent tax hit, and that's, uh, not counting your state rate on the uh, mm-hmm. on the capital gain side. If you're over a million dollars in income, and that's for what when you sell a property, right? That's capital so when you gains. Go through, so that's not anything, 1031. That's not 1031. So anything capital gains related. But if you're over the four hundred thousand dollars, you're not going to be able to utilize the 1031. Right. 
Um, so that's going to that's going to affect a lot of a lot of people who uh, have the ability out there to be able to uh, to do what we're talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. I know. So, but yeah. it, like the whole purpose that you said that the reason why these things are in there in the first place is because they wanted to ignite investment. They wanted people to make these investments. So basically what you're saying is at this point, what that's the net effect mm -hmm. or what they're trying to do is to stop this investment. Sure. I don't think they're thinking that far out. Well, um, I don't either, but yeah. I'm just saying like, I mean, if you use the logic from this is why the government has this in the first place, mm -hmm. then well, if they stop doing mm -hmm. this, then they're really, they're, what they're doing in essence is stopping, yep. you know, sure. the, the enticement or that that nugget that you get for investment. You know, I hate to say, I mean, it, it is kind of one of those things. You're the progressive left-hand side of the uh, of the of the of the of that particular party. Uh, they're not thinking two and three steps ahead. They're trying to silo this and say, okay, well, if we do this, we're going to raise this amount of money and be able to invest it in infrastructure and get this money votes. And, you, and you have to and you have to remember that for people like us, um, who are the producers, um, guess what we're going to do? We're going to hire less people. You we're not going to buy that property. You got it. We're going to find other ways because guess what? The government is going to force us to act in a way that they mm -hmm. want us to act. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean they're going to force us to pay more in taxes always. Okay. It may, it may mean I'm going to utilize some of the other mm -hmm. strategies that are still out there. Yeah. It may be personal property investing. It may be doing other types of things uh, that, uh, that we're going to end up investing in because now the government is punishing us now mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for, for really, we talk about infrastructure spending. What better infrastructure spending an investor going through taking mm -hmm. a property mm -hmm. that's in disrepair, yeah. fixing it up, yeah. and then allowing for somebody in the community to live in that home yeah. or commercial or whatever, or whatever it is. Whatever it is. It and I mean, matter. that's just kind of like, okay, this is the foundation. We talk about, you know, the, the American dream. What's one part of the American dream? Owning a home. Mm -hmm. I just on Facebook today, one of our one of our friends uh, that we uh, that we know well put on Facebook, bought my first home today. Mm -hmm. You know, and I applaud that mm -hmm. as part of the American dream. They went through and, and what are you know you guys doing as real estate investors? You're providing for part of that. Well, guess what? You punish that activity, you're gonna see more and more boarded up houses, you're not gonna see investment going into that community. And who cares lights. if the who cares if the roads are paved? <laughs> Nobody's living there anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. You got it. So what else in twenty twenty one? So basically none of this has happened yet. Right. But I also know that there has been, you know, a target on the stepped up uh, basis as well. Mm -hmm. There, there has been, and, and for most people, it, at this point, it's not going to affect them. It's going to be more at death um, if you have over one or two million dollars in, uh, in, in essentially in what's in in assets. Essentially, they're not excluded, and it, it, we get really complicated on here. So, if you have a million dollar plus net worth, but that hasn't happened yet. It this has is not just happened. What they're yet. trying to right, it's what they're trying to do. In all probability, it's going to be is probably going to go through. But it also, in all probability, for probably for most people listening, by the time the next administration gets in. Um, provided we don't continue down this this crazy insanity of, of um, a lack of understanding of the way the capitalism works that's going on now, that uh, the next the next president that comes in uh, in Congress will reverse this and, and bring a little bit more sanity back to uh, uh, to the market. We can only hope so. We can only hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so anything else in 2021? Anything different that we need to keep our eyes on for uh, not you know for, for for real estate investors? No, because there's a lot more that goes on to it. I mean, they're, they're kind of doing a lot more for lower income taxpayers. As it relates to some of these other things, and you know, we get to that on a, on a different podcast. But, um, but for now, as far as for the real estate investor, just be kind of aware of those things. Keep your eyes open. If if and this is a year, if you're looking to do something, uh, the rules have not changed yet. And most of this will not go into effect until 2022. So if you're going to do something, act quickly, get it done now, uh, whether it is a 1031. Uh, if you're looking to buy properties to take advantage of the accelerated appreciation, it does not look like they're going to they're going to change that as of right now, but they may. 
Uh, but those are things, you, I mean, this is the year uh, to, uh, to make things happen where we know that, at least as of right now, uh, what we're definitively looking at. And we, one thing that we, I think we, do, we all do understand is that those rates are going to go up and some of those benefits are, that, we, that are in place now are going to be taken away. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Josh, for yeah. being on today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for your investment in our community. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody would want to get a hold of you, um, do you have a website or a place to be able to send them? Sure. So um, the name of my firm is uh, Lodestar Tax and Consulting, uh, lodestar.tax, uh, L-O-D-S-T-A-R uh, dot tax. And, you know, yeah, we have a, a web page. You can find us on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. And you do specialize in real estate investors. So just yeah. so you guys know, there's not very many accountants out there that are really specialized in this space. And some of them that do have no idea what they're doing. Uh, but really, like your typical accountant, like this has gotten so complex over the last 20 years that you don't even try using a regular uh, accountant when it comes to your real estate stuff um, and your real estate thing specifically.